I never had a clear vision for which profession I wanted to go into or which field I wanted to work in. To me, my time at Dort represents the period of time where I was figuring that out. Dort opened my mind to think about what needs are in the world I could address. God was moving my story from Dort into grad school to study occupational therapy. And then led me to the opportunity to move here to India. I really have developed a big heart for India. I think one of the hardest things about living here is that there is a lot of social injustice around people with disabilities. Their fate was decided the moment they were born. It's very common and even accepted for parents who have a child with a disability to abandon that child. They'll leave the child at a park or a railway station, and that's perfectly legal and also encouraged. Awesome, Deb. You're gonna get it. Ready? Dort instilled in me wisdom that works. I began to think about how I could reform the culture through my daily acts of service. I am an occupational therapist for a group of nine kids with disabilities. They're the ones who I came here for. They're the ones who have no family. I'm taking on that role as a mother, as their only advocate. We're trying to change people's perspectives about disability and about the worth of these kids. My time at Dort was instrumental in helping me think critically about am I really living out what I'm saying that I believe. I also felt God saying to me, do what you're saying and you know, be that family. So. That is when I decided to pursue the adoption of my daughter. Divya has cerebral palsy and she's not able to walk independently. She is absolutely my favorite person. She's very creative and very thoughtful and very loving. I love being her mom so much. The last year has been incredibly special to me as we've been able to grow together as a family. I'm living out what he is leading me to do. And I'm so glad that by God's just gentle leading, he brought me to this place to be doing what I'm doing and to have the family that I now have.
Am I really living out what I'm saying I believe? I don't know if you heard that quote. I've watched it so many times, but I still tear up. But I've watched it enough times to know where the story turns. Am I really living out what I'm saying I believe? And I'm hearing God say, do what you're saying and be that family. I first introduced you to Marissa last fall at our convocation where I challenged us to be in the world but not of the world. To be active in culture but to do it differently. And I'm going to double down on that today at our chapel. I don't know if you noticed Marissa in the Word in that video where God convicted her to adopt. And I guess that's what I want you to take away from this morning is that Scripture are words of life. Scripture is food for our souls. C.S. Lewis said it this way, God made us, he invented us as a man would invent an engine a car is made to run on gas, but we're, run, we're made to run on himself. It's himself that fills our spirits and animates our beings. The prophet Ezekiel had that. The beginning of the book of Ezekiel, God called him to go speak to Israel. And he put him in a dream sequence, and we're not sure if that was a dream sequence or God right there with him, but Ezekiel says this. He says, Son of man, listen to what I say to you. Don't rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. It was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll and then go out and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat and he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. As Aaron and I were batting around this, he says that's not the only place in Scripture that there was a scroll eaten. Revelation 10, John eats one and it kicked in his stomach. I'm not sure whether it kicked in Ezekiel's stomach, but I'm guessing if Ezekiel's anything like me when he had to go speak to the people of Israel, his stomach was churning a bit, but maybe that sweet honey calmed his stomach. And that's what I want to encourage us today to do, to live on the words that are before us. We also find those words in creation as well. So I want us to think today in the lives of Marissa and then bring it down here. She sat right here for four years, you realize, right where you're sitting. Marissa sat, and I'm not here to scare you this morning or call you to India, but I am here to say that each one of us needs to do what we say we believe and act that out in the calling that God has for us. I've got a couple of things that I want to tell you about. I'll have one more story from a Dort alumni couple that I want to tell you about in terms of how they're doing it, but I want to do it around this thing called peculiar people. I don't know if anybody knows where that comes from in Scripture, to be peculiar people, but it's from 1 Peter 2. So if you want to follow along, we're going to spend the rest of our time in the book of 1 Peter 2, where God calls us a peculiar people. But I want to tell you something first, a funny story from Barb and I. I was a pre-sem major in college, and Barb and I were dating, and I got invited once, the first time 
to her grandparents' house for dinner. And after dinner, we did devotions, and they pulled out Scripture. And Barb's little brother, he was five years younger than us, so he was an early high schooler at the time, was asked to read Scripture. And it was the King James Version. And there were these and thous and wherefores and verilies, and he stumbled a bit. And afterwards, we all, after devotions were done, we all congratulated him on how well he had read and said, yeah, those these and those do come to trip you up from time to time. And I was a pre-sem major, and I had just learned that semester that the King James Version isn't actually a very good translation of Scripture because of which documents it was taken from the, for the Greek. So I said to Barb's grandma, you know the King James is a really bad translation of Scripture. That is not Barb's grandmother up there. But I can tell you that the look I got that day at lunch, my first lunch ever with the extended family, was worse than that. And it took me about two or three years um, to win back her favor. And I'm not here to put one version of Scripture or paraphrase above another, but today I do want to use the King James, and I think there's some beauty in the King James at at multiple levels. And when I hear a, a pastor still preach or pray with the these and thous that honor God and his omnipotence and the majesty that we should come before him, I think there's something very rich in that tradition that we can learn from. But I've put 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 up here in three versions, but I'm going to highlight the middle one. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Ye should show forth or shew forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now you are the people of God, which in time past had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. And I just want to play around today a little bit with that peculiar people and ask myself as I start out this new year and ask you as you start out this new year, much as God was asking Marissa, are you doing what you say you believe? Are you peculiar in the way I want you to be? So let's think about perhaps what does it mean to be a peculiar people? Honestly, I think the main piece of the King James peculiar people is the first definition. To be particular, to be special, to be chosen by God. I believe that's as Peter was using it. Again, Peter didn't write the word peculiar. It was translated into English that way. But I believe the main meaning of this text to be a peculiar people is this, that we acknowledge our chosenness by God. We acknowledge that for whatever reason and however it happened, God has chosen us to be his follower. It's nothing that we do. Because I think if we major in that part of peculiar, we'll get it right. Because if we major in the other one, I'm too afraid that we'll get into works righteousness and trying to to be, somehow win our salvation. We're already chosen. We're already redeemed. And once we accept the first definition of being a peculiar people, then I think we start to live into the second version of being a peculiar people. I thought about how to get this across, and my, my first metaphor, quite frankly, was thinking about a gold miner loading a bunch of gravel into his pan and shaking it to get to the particular, the peculiar, the chosen pieces that that gold miner wants. But then I thought, no, that gets it wrong. Because then we put ourselves in that position of, God, I'm shiny, choose me. And that's not how redemption works. 
So I don't think the metaphor of a peculiar people, the chosen ones, comes from that gold mining analogy of, of panning for gold and looking shiny. Instead, I, I think we are all just a pile of rubble. If we understand what Scripture says and if we pay attention to the catechism, sin is who we are. That is our first identity until Christ redeems us. But again, it has nothing to do with us being shiny or sitting in that pan in any particular manner. I don't want to leave you this morning with worrying about being shiny and being one of those particular chosen people because of your shininess. Rather, I do want you to accept fully that redemption that comes unmerited, unwarranted from Christ. Accept that as the peculiar people, but then begin to live into the second version of peculiar. To be strange or unusual. There was once a peculiar people denomination. It was in the 1800s in England. There was a Methodist woman whose husband was a shoemaker and he was a drunk. And she prayed for many years for him to be sort of taken over. And one day she brought him to church and he was. The sermon must have been very good that day. But he went on to become a Methodist preacher and he founded his own sect of Methodism called a peculiar people. It still lasts a little bit. There's a peculiar people cemetery in England that you can go to. But I want to challenge us as Dort College. I want to challenge you to be a peculiar people. And again, don't worry that that means that I have to do it exactly like Marissa did it or exactly like anyone else did it. Yet, I believe in Dort's alumni base, there are these role models, there are these stories that we need to tell and bring down so that even as you sit here today in your second semester as a freshman or your last semester as a senior, you can trust that God has a call in your life. And if you've put your trust in him to be that first type of peculiar people, then you're going to set off from here and become that second kind of peculiar people. I was thinking how to make that tangible to us. And I thought about what's peculiar about Dort. And there are many things. But one of them, and you may or may not know this, but is how we take this commandment seriously about the Sabbath. We're different. In fact, we and Northwestern in our athletic conference are the only two schools that won't play competitions on Sunday. And to date, that hasn't cost us anything in terms of championships or those kind of things. But I do see a coming day, I've got a friend who's the president of Covenant College, they joined a new athletic conference a few years ago, and their soccer team was in the championship to go on to the NCAA D3. But the championship was on Sunday, and they were a new entrant into that conference. And they decided not to play and went away from the championship. Again, I'm not setting anything up for the future. I'm not talking about that. And I also want to make sure that we don't do Sabbath observance because we're trying to make ourselves different in that pan of gold that God is sifting through to pick us out. That's called works righteousness or legalism. And that's not reformed and that's not biblical. So I don't want us to think of Sabbath observance in some ways as my generation grew up with it. Somehow God will smite us. That's a good King James word. God will smite us if we disobey the Sabbath. That's the, the nature of what we see in terms of Sabbath keeping that comes from Mark, right? Where God said, the Sabbath was made for man, but not man for the Sabbath. 
In Christ, we have much more freedom. You can see it throughout the, the New Testament in terms of what we eat and those types of things. That's very different than the Israel that Ezekiel came to talk to. We have tremendous amounts more freedom, but that freedom doesn't give us the freedom to live apart from God. And at least on this campus, that's one of the ways we've chosen to live it out. And yes, I do get an email at least once a year from a student that tells me to open up the library on Sunday because it's a great place to study. Again, we're going to keep talking about these things, and I don't want us to say, well, we're that school that doesn't play on Sunday and try to shine ourselves up to be looked at. Again, legalism, works righteousness, that's not the point this morning. But the point is, once we've put our trust and our faith in Christ, then we do need to live in peculiar ways. Let me tell you about my peculiar way of living. Many of you know that I'm a huge, I'll call myself a politics geek. I love being in Washington, D.C. and walking the halls of Congress, which I'll do in two or three weeks. My meeting with Steve King is certainly going to be an interesting one this year. But I've got to pay attention. I've got to be peculiar in accordance with Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. When my heart of hearts, when I'm hearing political debate and sitting in, in Congress talking to our legislators, and there are what I think are just bad ideas, it's really hard for me to live peaceably with all. And it's becoming harder and harder in this culture for any of us to be able to do that, no matter what our convictions are. If you're that kind of a person, I want to recommend a book to you called Them. It's written by Ben Sass. Ben's a friend of mine. He's a Reformed Christian. He used to worship with Donald Roth, I believe, when they were both in Washington, D.C. He's a wise man. He's a senator from Nebraska. He wrote a book recently called Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. I think Christians have an unbelievable opportunity right now in our culture to be peculiar, whether you're red or blue, Democrat, Republican, we can be peculiar in both ways. And I certainly would ask us all to keep Randy Feenstra in prayer. Whether he's in Washington, D.C. within weeks, or whether he runs against Steve King in two years, Randy has to be a peculiar politician because Christ owns him. And he knows that. And we need to pray for him. And not only him, we need to pray for Pelosi and Schumer. We need to pray for everybody involved in Washington, D.C. This is a big deal, this moment in history. We need to be peculiar people. And this book for me over the holidays was a great way for me to look at myself in the mirror and say, am I being peculiar enough, Lord, in the way in which I live out Romans 12, 18. I want to show you another video here in a minute of another alumni couple, Jason and Yvonne Kim. I think faithfulness and peculiarity does not look like for all of us going to India and adopting a child as a single person, the way Marissa did. Peculiarity can look for us very much like going back to the family farm, or living right here in Sioux Center, or going and taking a job in Wall Street, or at the Mayo Clinic, Peculiarity is not always across the ocean. Peculiarity 
is a way of living. It's a way of eating the scroll, of taking the words of Scripture, whether those be Romans 12, 18 for you or other passages, and eating those words and tasting them sweet and digesting them, and even when they kick, living it out faithfully. So let me show you what Yvonne and Jason have done with it. The challenges of agriculture aren't going to go away. And I don't think that's an accident. God uses all sort of challenges to help us to grow. It's growing in our abilities to function in the sphere that he's called us to. For me, that's agriculture. We are on the Kim Seed Potato Farm. Our farm and this community comes from the Dutch background. The farm has been passed down. I'm the fifth generation that's been involved in agriculture. The farmstead has changed operations from hay and grain and cows to a potato operation. And that's how we exist today. And we're raising a, a family to try to carry on that legacy here in the Gallatin Valley in agriculture. When I attended Dort, when I went there as a 18-year-old farm kid from Montana, my view of agriculture was pretty much conventional. The fact that it's a liberal arts education, that it's not just focused on a particular area, but gives us exposure to a, a broad range was very important for me. That they created tension, and in that tension, I was able to learn, not just get a grade. I loved going to Dort. Dort truly is like family. My own father passed away when I was 15, so I was at Dort when I was 18, 19 years old. I was at that stage that I was noticing that, yeah, I didn't have a father figure. Dr. Feenstra is like a second father to me. He put down everything in his office and said, why don't you sit down and talk? From that day on, he just watched out for me. I think Dort, one of the things that I experienced there is they forced me to think about things a lot differently. The answers didn't have to be quite as conventional as before. And when I came back and I was thinking about what are the challenges on our farm, we had been faced with a fungal disease and we had increased in some viral pathogens. And instead of just using pesticides, we said, okay, what else can we do? And we started learning about compost tea. And basically compost tea is this liquid solution of beneficial microorganisms for crops. So he grew an acre of potatoes and in the fall, I said, great, you figured out that you can grow potatoes with no chemicals, now what? And he said, you can sell anything. He said, you sell those potatoes. God gave us the opportunity to start raising organic crops. And we got to the end of the year, I'm like, it's organic. We could sell this. Let's do it. Dorit taught both Jason and I to, to raise the bar, to think beyond what we always have known. And that was how Kim's Organic Potatoes started. My understanding of agriculture that I was given at Dort, it gave me a platform to then say, okay, how am I gonna do this? What's been passed down for generations? What can I learn from the scientists and people who are doing lots of research? What can I learn from these guys? And how do we put that all together and build an agricultural model whose end goal is to glorify God? The main part of Kim's Organic Potatoes that I do is the marketing but I've built so many relationships with people in Bozeman. They know that I'm a Christian and my morals and my standards, they can see that in me and Dort taught me in all things that I do that Christ is working through me. Agriculture can lose a face and we want agriculture to keep that face. They know us and they trust us. Without Dort, I would not be the person that I am. 
There's a woman that I sell potatoes to. She showed up on my doorstep and she was crying and she said, my grandmother passed away and I need a hug and you're the only person I knew that I could get one from. That's the kindness and the compassion that I learned a lot from Dr. Veenstra. Yvonne and I chose to integrate our family into agriculture. I love to interact with them. I love to teach them. I'm passionate about agriculture. I'm passionate about my relationship with God. You know, work and food to produce. Thank you, Lord. I'll be on New York it's an answer to prayer that I can be out there in the field working with my kids and teach them what Dort stands on. It's the same thing I stand on. Everything they do, they do it to glorify and honor God. It's just beautiful. an agricultural system whose end goal is to glorify God. That's peculiar. A family that sits down to dinner and holds hands and prays before dinner, sadly, that's getting more and more peculiar. A potato salesman whose customers come back for hugs when they need empathy and sympathy, that's peculiar. So we can do this however God has called us to, but that's what I want to challenge us in this new semester is to do it. And I think Yvonne was saying this. This is where the whole passage, for me at least, comes together. And now I'm going to use the message because I think it says it so well. That if we are peculiar people and that royal priesthood and holy nation, that we need to live in this world because it's not our home, our ultimate home. So we shouldn't make ourselves cozy in it. We shouldn't indulge our egos and build ag systems whose goals aren't to glorify God. We shouldn't indulge our egos at the expense of our souls. We need to live exemplary lives among the natives so that our actions will refute their prejudices. Certainly, if we think about the political realm, there are plenty of prejudices about Christians. Randy needs to live such an exemplary life that it will refute those prejudices. And we need to pray for him as he does so. Then, perhaps they'll be won over to God's side and be able to join in the celebration when he arrives. That's ultimately the point of us living here, is to glorify God and do it in ways that perhaps somebody will notice Marissa in India and say, why have you come here? Why have you come here to be with these children? And Marissa will have the opportunity to talk to them about Christ who lives in her. Or when Jason is saying, why would you ever try compost tea instead of this fungicide or herbicide? Maybe he'll have that opportunity. And I'm sure that Yvonne had the opportunity when that potato customer left to follow up with her in the weeks leading on to minister to her in her grief. That's what peculiar people look like. You'll be peculiar in your own way, by God's grace, we pray, and we will work towards that in this semester. And professors and staff, you can see between Charles Veenstra and people like the professors that led into Marissa's life, we have an important role to build peculiar people as well. 
So before we stand and sing our last song, I just want to encourage you with this. Yes, at some level, you're just a rock in that pile. But by God's grace, earlier in the passage, it says this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans and chosen by God and precious to him, you also are little Christ. You are a living stone being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I sometimes look at the world and I think it's too big. Probably three times in the last two months I've written at the end of an email, come Lord Jesus, because the pressures are too great. But this should give me confidence and I hope it gives you confidence in the year ahead whether it's in politics or agriculture or social services, whether it's in India or in Montana or in Sioux Center. It's not up to you individually. You're one stone, fully redeemed, shining bright, being built into that spiritual house. And as we stand together as God's people, that's the kingdom here on earth until he comes again. I hope that gives you confidence and energy. And I would invite you to eat those words this semester.